You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. John chapter 5, if you have your Bibles or your YouVersion apps. Now remember, this is part 2, so if you missed part 1, it's important to know that there are some things about this story that uh, you may want to hear that we've already talked about. Of course, there may be things part of the story that you want to hear that I'm just not smart enough to give, so there's also that. But when we first talked about this story, we talked about how we learned from this man who kept showing up. He kept showing up, 38 years, but he kept showing up. And he kept showing up, and Jesus didn't quit on him. And we talked about how we keep showing up. God doesn't quit on us. And so we can, and we should, learn from this and keep showing up. That's one takeaway from this story. And that was one, what we call point of view. But today I want to offer another point of view. So John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. After this, there was a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, in the north city wall, is a pool with the Aramaic name Bethsaida. It had four, five covered porches and a crowd of people who were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed, sat there. I want to pause. John wants us to know the kind of folks that are at this pool. He doesn't just say sick people. He categorizes based upon social descriptions who these people are. They are the blind, the the lame, the sick, and the paralyzed. Verse 5. A certain man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, knowing that he'd already been there for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I don't have anyone who can put me in the water when it's stirred up. When I'm trying to get it, someone else has gotten ahead of me. Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Immediately the man was well, and he picked up his mat and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. All right, remember, we said this two weeks ago. It's important. I'm not going to give all the context, but just remind us of the context. Jesus bypasses all the centers of power in Jerusalem and goes to a place where no one has power. You with me? Keep that in your heart. That's important. This hospital-like place around the pool is on the outskirts of town, and it's filled with sick people, disposable and deselected people. People not chosen, not included. The forgotten, and they're waiting for a miracle. They're hoping for wholeness and new life. And this spring attracts this crowd of displaced people who knew they had come to the end of their rope because they were about to the end of their hope. And this was their final stop. This community of the deselected, the voices of despair, crying out one moment after moment for hope. And this is where Jesus goes. He goes around the powers of the capital city of Jerusalem and to this place. And these folks, these neighbors, in the midst of all of them, John tells us about this man who for 38 years has been sick. John doesn't tell us how he got sick and how sick he was, only that he was immobile that he was not able to move quick enough 
get to the pool. He was what some would call disabled or what we would now call differently abled. And before you think that is just PC, hold your thoughts. And let me explain to you, at least from my view in the text and in society, why that matters, the language we use. There's a discipline of study called disability studies. I'm not an expert in this at all, um, but I've learned from those who are, and I want to share what those have taught me so that we can see this story from a different point of view. But before we do that, I just want to remind us of a couple of things. One, if you'll pull your masks up, we want to stay masked so that everybody is safe. We'd appreciate that. For two, what I want to do is remind us that this could be activating, what I'm about to say, or what we call triggering. Over the next few minutes in this section of our conversation, I'm going to use language that may be hard to hear. I'm going to mention laws that may be hard to hear. So if you love someone who is differently abled, neurologically, intellectually, physically, please know that my reason for doing this is to unfold the context of this story and place it in our own story as a sincere effort to open our hearts to the liberating gospel of King Jesus. And so stay with me if you can. Society has always disabled people whose bodies are not up to the standards set by society. Are you with me? Every society, every society from Jesus' society to our society has a long history of refusing to do whatever it takes to make sure all have access to society's benefits, including things like transportation or mobility in general, architecture, fair housing, education, employment, political power. And someone is determined, everybody say determined. Someone is determined, disabled, based upon how society has predetermined what is able and normal. And then builds laws, rules, virtues, and values, or what we would call state politics, around those determinations. Are you with me? For example, the most logical, maybe. Society considers two walking legs accompanied with a strong back as able or normal. Stairs will be the structure we choose to get from one level to another. Why not a slope? Why not a ramp? Why not that from the get-go? Because feet and legs that operate in what we call normal can bend and step. So what happens if someone is born with legs that do not operate like that? What happens when suddenly, due to illness or accident, steps disable mobility? See, the truth is, throughout U.S. history, people with disabilities were often feared and ridiculed for what was crassly perceived as defects. And they were deselected from inclusion in society, pushed to the margins of society. And by the 1960s, the discrimination had been codified in our laws. People with disabilities were excluded from public schools, involuntarily sterilized, sent to live in state-run institutions, and even denied the right to vote. Some U.S. municipalities even had so-called ugly laws prohibiting people legally labeled, legally labeled as unsightly or disgusting in public places. 
The most well-known happened in Chicago in 1881 when it stated that any person who was diseased, deformed, and mutilated in any way would be subject, if found in the streets and the highways and the thoroughfares, to fines or even incarcerated. From the mid-1700s to the 1970s, some of our most well-known cities in our society had public laws that were meant to press down and manage, everybody say manage, manage the underprivileged class who were considered a burden to society and thought of as useless. It was a society that allowed a neighbor's disability to erase their humanity. And it wasn't until 1990 that people living with disabilities had civil rights. 1990, y'all. It wasn't until then that they had laws to protect them against such horrible, dehumanizing discriminations. The American Disabilities Act, 1990. It was hailed as the world's first declaration of equality for people with disabilities. 1990. And there was no other civilization in society that had something like this until 1990. Now why do I share this? Because too often times, we detach ourselves from the 2,000 years distance between the story of Scripture and the story in which we live. And it'd be real easy to throw the society of Jesus' day out and under a bus and talk about how archaic they are, how uninformed they are, how ill-educated they are, and miss the absolute connection that we aren't always so different. See, as this law passed in 1990, businesses threw a fit. The financial investment required to accommodate differently abled neighbors by removing barriers or building access like ramps or making bathrooms accessible all the way to not discriminating in their hiring practices created a firestorm, a firestorm in the private business sector. And as you'd imagine, language like rights and liberty was thrown around by those who oppose such measures. And that would be sad enough were it not for the fact that during that time when this law passed, many Christian communities and institutions like churches and schools opposed the American Disabilities Act of 1990. Christian institutions cried out that this new legislated requirement to have accessible ramps and bathrooms and the like was just too much of a burden. Just ask you to think about that. Christian entities oppose this because of who really knows what. It's probably not a stretch to conclude that it was the same as society at large that even the Christian community believed or felt that the humanity of neighbors living with disability was less important than the inconvenience of welcoming them. And in some cases, and in some ways, and in some minds, this hasn't changed. But before 1990, no one really seemed to care. Only until 1990 did the federal government write in laws that required we care. 
Sadly, sometimes that's what it takes. Right? Sometimes it takes state politics and laws passed by empire to teach a society to show care for those society would rather not care for. Anytime this happens, there will be some, even Christians and large Christian institutions, who push back. And they'll cite the same old tired arguments that have been cited for generations. Arguments that center around freedom, liberties, rights, and the like. And we would do well to remember that today. But back to our story. From a disability perspective in John chapter 5, there's a few things that are opened up. I want you to look at what John does not tell us in this story. John does not tell us the sick man's name. John does not tell us the nature of his sickness and how it disabled him and in what way. John does not tell us these things. Maybe because John doesn't want us to get lost and miss the bigger point. See, what we do know is that this man had come to a place filled with sick people, the disposable and the deselected, and he's waiting for a miracle, hoping for what he calls wholeness. Wholeness based upon society's predetermined categories. Are you with me? waiting for new life in a society that tells him something is wrong with him. And after 38 years, he is still looking for what he believes to be a cure. The whole time, as he's looking for what he believes to be a cure, to fit in society and according to society's predetermined categories of inclusion and power, 38 years looking for that cure, life passes him by. He's come to believe the role that state politics of empire has assigned to him and others like him. That their lives will be filled with helplessness and little if no value or worth. That his dependency upon others makes him less useful to a society that is governed by power and the politics of empire. See, society's laws and rules and the virtues and values most admired by the state politics of empire make it this way. See, in a society committed to violence and war, neighbors like him are not useful on the field of battle. In a society committed to upward mobility and wealth, neighbors like him aren't useful in business. In order for society to function according to society's standards and values and virtues, the laws must give advantage to the majority, the ones considered strong and able-bodied. After all, that's what majorities do. It's why they are the majority. What majority, what majority would ever want to pass laws and ordinances and leverage its power in such a way that another majority could possibly rise up and take its influence and power? Come on now. The majority cannot remain the majority in a society of diversity if it allows for too much equity and equality. Come on. 
And then Jesus shows up at the pool. See, Jesus comes to the pool of Bethesda with an alternative view. And it's an alternative view determined by an alternative kingdom. See, where society has labeled this place filled with the disposable and deselected on the outskirts of town, Jesus comes into this place seeing all people, even the disposable and deselected, as of immense worth and value. By Jesus simply being present in the presence of these neighbors, He is ascribing worth and value. By the fact that Jesus goes around the power centers of the capital city to come to the outskirts of town, Jesus is demonstrating His view of their dignity and purposefulness. Because we see it playing out that Jesus is affirming their lives. And, and I think John is calling to our attention the fact that the diversity found in different bodies is a gift to society. It's a gift to community. So you remember, Jesus gives this man his ability to walk despite the fact that he never answers Jesus' question if he wanted to be made well. You remember that? And in doing so, I think Jesus meets him in his place of hope. Meets him in his desire to be reincorporated in society as one who would be seen as able. But affirms his life just as it is. See, I think there's something to learn. It seems that this man had fallen into this hopeless state and had put all his hope in healing. And who wouldn't blame him? Two weeks ago, I encouraged us to learn from this man. To learn from his willingness to keep showing up. But this week, there's another layer I want us to see that we didn't cover two weeks ago. That is a part of the story that opens up what I'm trying to offer you today. It's in the what could be considered the most confusing section of this story, unless I think we place it in context. It's John chapter 5, verse 10. The Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. You aren't allowed to carry your mat. He answered, the man who made me well said to me, pick up my mat and walk. And they inquired to him, who is this man who said to you, pick it up and walk? And the man who had been cured didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped away from the crowd gathered there. And here's the text that presents the confusion. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found him. Because, you know, Jesus finds us. Like he found him earlier. Jesus found him in the temple. In the temple, the place of worship. Jesus found him in the temple and said, See? You've been made well. Don't sin anymore in case something worse happens to you. That's the part that presents confusion. 
I think, until you read verse 15 in light of verse 13. The man went and proclaimed to the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the man who made him well. Now, there's so much conjecture and guessing about Jesus' whole don't sin anymore in case something worse happens to you language. Scholars have tried hard to make sense of the statement, some even wondering if somehow disability is connected to sin. His disability, his disability is connected to sin. And oddly enough, this was a view that people held back then. They were superstitious to believe that these things were punishments of God. And y'all in the USA, it was a view too, by the way. Despite the fact that Jesus debunks this idea in John 9, I think there's still a larger context that makes more sense of this than trying to go there, and I want to offer it to you. I want you to look at verse 15 again. The man went and proclaimed to the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the man who had made him well. See, this man was confronted by the religious and political powers about who healed him. He didn't know at the time, but when he found out, what did he do? Did he give God praise in the temple? Did he shout out God's name? Did he give God thanks for Jesus? Did he try to protect Jesus from what was clearly suspicion of power and authority by the religious powers and authority? No. He told them it was Jesus. Sometimes we are more grateful for the healing than we are the healer. And I can't help but wonder if his mind and heart was set more on the healing and the benefits of the healing based upon the standards of society rather than the healer. And I think we see this play out in several stories in the Gospels, don't we? Where, where people take the healing but they deny the healer. Remember the ten lepers that were healed and only one comes back and the nine never come. Remember the stories in the Gospels where it seems like we want the healer more, healing more than we want the healer. We want the, we want the blessings more than we want the blesser. And so then when we need more healing and we need more blessing, what do we do? We run back out into society's pools of standards, into society's pool of what is called normal. And we try to find the answers for ourselves one yet and again. This man had longed for 38 years to be included, to be seen as normal, to be wanted, to be, quote, able. And so he kept showing up looking for his miracle cure. And then he found his cure, but not in a pool, but in a person. He found Jesus. But it doesn't look like he kept him. Instead, he conceded to the political powers and told them who it was. And maybe, maybe, this is my reading, Maybe that's what Jesus is warning him against. Maybe that's why Jesus warns him. Maybe Jesus knew that instead of setting his sights on Jesus and what his healing could mean in light of the purposes of God, he set his sights on others' desires, real and meaningful and understandable as they are, but desires that will be nonetheless not enough because it's based on the wrong standard. Come on now. Y'all got to help me. After 38 years, he should have known. But maybe that was the lesson he had not learned. So he was receiving a warning from Jesus. To learn that lesson. 
Your hope is not in the pool of what society says is now acceptable or normal or able or good or true. Our healing and the cure we long for is going to be found in the person of Jesus. What he says is good. What he says is beautiful. What he says is true. So I wish we knew more about how this man's life ended up. But it doesn't seem to be John's point. We don't even know his name or the nature of his disability. But what we do know is that he was healed, but only when Jesus entered into the story. What we do know is that the state politics of empire did not value him, but Jesus did. What we do know is that the state politics of empire built systems that exclude, but Jesus offered him a system that includes. The pool and hospital-like place on the outskirts of the capital city and the state politics that associated with it failed this man for 38 years. Society failed this man for 38 years. The state politics of empire failed this man for 38 years. But Jesus didn't fail this man even after 38 years. See, in a society powerful enough Powerful enough to predetermine who is worthy, valued, and able? Because it is. Jesus offers an alternative way. A way powerful enough to redefine all of society's predetermined categories of worth, value, and ableness. See, in a society whose laws and rules has the power to set a standard that impacts all people, even has the power to attempt to erase someone else's humanity. The only thing Jesus erases are the boundaries set in order to protect power and the preserved way of life that upholds some and presses down others. And the people of Jesus should follow the way. In the society where the values and virtues it admires has the power to offer freedom to some and lesser freedom to others. The virtues and values demonstrated by Jesus has the power to truly liberate all of us in the deepest of us, any of us, everyone, anyone. And how is that? We have to decide where we're going to look. We're going to go to the pool on the outer gate. Or we're going to look to the person. We're going to put our hope in state politics of empire as somehow they can write checks that they somehow have the power to cash but probably won't. Are we going to be the people of God who live off a different economy? And let the truth of, of community and inclusion and hospitality and generosity move us outward into the city streets. 
and model an alternative way of life, a different kind of politic that at some point calls truth to power? Or are we going to be like everybody else and just run somehow to the pool and hope that when it gets stirred up just at the right time, those of us in our desperate need will jump in and somehow find our cure. The answer is not in control. It's not in coercion. It's not in manipulation. And Lord knows it's not in violence. The answer is in the way of Jesus. It's in the truth and the goodness and the beauty that Jesus models if we pay close attention to the story. Society will continue to build categories based upon skin and body. Based upon brains and nervous systems. And try to convince us that certain ones are more worth or valuable or useful than others. And the kingdom of God offers an entirely different way. Has a totally different standard that says you are able and you are worth and you are of immense value just as you are, not as society says you ought to be. And you aren't just needed, you are wanted. And you know what the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians 12? That the church should get this so much that it should even be willing to give greater honor to those whom society has assigned as lesser honor. The church should overcorrect the unjust, woefully incorrect way of society. Not because we put our hope in Babylon, but because we put our hope in Jesus. Every week, every single week, we come to the table. Every week. And we remember the body of Jesus. We remember the body of Jesus. The body that walked into this place. The body that touched other bodies. The body that submitted itself to the violence of state politics. The body that allowed nails to be put in its hands. The body that was crucified on a tree. The body that was risen from the grave, that ate fish on a beach by a fire, the body that revealed resurrection and a totally different kind of power to another group of bodies called the disciples. We worship a God who values the body, all of them, just as they are. There are no defects in the kingdom of God. There just aren't. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.